Well, this week, you survived another one. Another election come and gone. The mailbox has gone from two pounds of mail every day to like two pieces of mail every day. (laughs) And it's always interesting in election time watching all of the ads and all of the talk. And it's amazing just how much anger and vitriol it seems like there is as, as candidates are spewing on other candidates. And, you know, there's probably some situations you're in that you know just not to bring up politics, right? Is that, is that safe to say? Uh, I, I, I made that mistake once with one family member and, and spent the next hour just realizing that that person had the exact opposite political views that I did on every possible case. I think they were just trying to get under my skin after a while. It, you know, politics has a way of dividing, right? Because we, we, we take our views and we hold them so firmly and we are firmly convinced that the other side is wrong. That's right. Um, my kids are getting a little older and so this was the first election that we actually watched some of the returns together and I tried to explain what an election was and why we do this. At the end of it, they're like, just tell us which team to root for, the red or the blue. <laughs> <laughs> After I had tried to describe the difference between the two political parties, and then an independent candidate came up, and that just threw that out. They're like, I don't understand this independent thing then. And, um, but yeah, so they just want to know who to root for because we're geared to, to take sides and our, to be competitive and who's going to win. And we have all kinds of things that we, we have factions over and that we take sides on. How many of you are Angels fans? I'm so sorry. <laughs> See, we, we, you know, we joke about it. We have said, no, we don't divide over that, but we have differences of opinions, right? That starts from, from early on. We have quarrels with, with uh, my kids have quarrels about what's theirs and whether they get their way and they're, they're doing it wrong. And, and one of mine just always thinks they're right and lets you know. But as we move into the church setting, the same thing can transfer into the church, can't it? We have 200 people with 200 different opinions here. 200 wonderfully created, unique individuals gifted by God in different ways that have different takes on things. So how do we come together as a church? And this is where Paul starts his first mode of teaching in 1 Corinthians. Last week was the introduction and We saw him identifying who they were in Christ. And the very first thing he comes to is divisions in the church. And that's what he chooses to address first out of all the things in 1 Corinthians he can address. And the title of our series is Godly Living in an Ungodly World. And and if Paul is addressing this first, there's a priority to this, to how we can live godly in the middle of a, a world that is constantly trying to infiltrate not only our own lives, but the church. There are all kinds of things we can argue about. It's easier to divide than to come together sometimes. I love the one story of uh, um, two churchmen, and and one was um, on the the Golden Gate Bridge uh, about to jump off, and the other one comes alongside, and he's trying to convince him not to jump. And he said, do you believe in God? And the one that was about to jump said, well, I do believe in God. Uh, The first one said, well, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, I'm a Christian. He said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? Protestant. Me too. What denomination? He says, Baptist. Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? 
He says Northern Baptist. Me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? This gets long. Northern Conservative Baptist. Me too. What a coincidence. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? He says Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. Me too. There's just a couple more. <laughs> Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879? Or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And the guy says, die heretic, and pushes him off. We can divide over the strangest things. And it's just a silly little story, not true, but illustrative of, of what can happen in the church. Whether it be different preferences of, of who's speaking and teaching styles or color on the walls. And, you know, I praise God that I just don't hear that much of that. And, and there's so many things that we unite over at Village but I know that that is something that can easily creep into the church. And so we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be looking at 10 through 17 today. And we'll be looking at what Paul has to say to a church that is deeply divided, who that story may not have been that foreign to. And we want to look at what he says and how, what he teaches the church to protect them from divisions in the church. Now, this passage is the first of actually three and a half chapters on divisions in the church. It's that important to Paul to deal with. And so, over the next few weeks, we'll deal with different aspects as he brings us to, to the center of it all and then comes back to this. But we start with identifying what the problem was in the church. And Paul gives us just four things to be on guard for and to be looking for. So, I'd like to read the, the whole passage again, 10 through 17, but I want to start at verse 9. Verse 9 is something that I like to call a hinge verse. It's a verse that goes with the paragraph before and goes with this verse. So it serves to conclude the introduction, but it also serves to introduce this passage. So we'll start at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Lord God, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us to be a church like you want us to be, Lord, and that if there's any even seeds of division, that your, your word today 
would cause us to seek those out and to stamp them out. Lord, speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come back to verse 10, the start of it, and Paul just gets right into it. And his first point is to make sure that you have the same main thing. To make sure you have the same main thing. And it's sort of a play on words. You've heard the phrase, you know, the main thing needs to be the main thing in your life. And it's sort of a a thing of priorities. In this case, Paul is saying you have to have the same priorities, the same focus, the same main thing. Let's sort of unpack verse 10 here as, as that's where this is coming from. He starts by saying, I appeal to you, brothers. And an appeal here is parakletos. It's a a coming alongside and urging someone to the right course of action. And he he adds the word brothers to remind them that we are one and unified in Christ. And so we see a picture here of Paul coming alongside a church in trouble and saying, I urge you to fix this. I urge you to make this right. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see for the tenth time in ten verses, just in case we're wondering what Paul's central theme at the beginning here is, we see the Lord Jesus Christ being the focus of Paul's theology, of his action, and and what he wants the focus of the church to be. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the very reason you are one, by the one that brought you into the family of God, that all of you agree. And so his first instruction there is that we're to agree. And and I actually really like the the original language here. It says to speak the same thing. Because when we think of agree, my first thought is, that means we all have to have the same opinions. We're, We're sunk. But that's not what he's saying. And when we, when we think about what unity is not, it's not becoming a clone of each other. It's not 200 identical people walking along in a row. It's that we agree or that we speak the same thing. And that's a reference that they would have used for having the same focus. Having the same main priority in life. That the main thing is the same thing for them. Let me just illustrate it. Let's have some fun this morning. You know, I like to do things that help us understand Scripture. Um, so baseball, uh, not baseball, football season is, is upon us, right? And you're here instead of watching the 10 o'clock games. That's awesome. But just for a moment, I want everyone at once to say go and then insert your favorite football team. Okay? So whether it be... This is safe for me. I really don't have a favorite team. Wait, wait, not yet, not yet. <laughs> We have some passionate factions going here. Um, now, some of you here this morning are like, football? <laughs> yeah, why would I care about football? So you just say, I don't care about football, okay? So that's your, your division or your faction. I don't care about football. Everyone else, go and then whatever your favorite team name is, okay? On three. One, two, three. That was a bit more passion than I expected. <laughs> That's awesome. What did you just hear? I don't even know what I just heard there. <laughs> it was chaos, right? It was confusion because we're not speaking with the same voice. To speak with the same voice, you have to have the same passion and the same focus. Now, if I was to say, let's all say together, praise Jesus Christ, one, two, three... Praise Jesus Christ. That's powerful. 
That's one voice speaking the same thing coming together, and that's more powerful than one person saying it. That's the imagery that Paul is using here when he says, I want all of you to agree. I want you to speak the same voice. Talk about the same things. Have the same thing that's important to you. We can have all kinds of different opinions, but what's important to us is what we'll talk about and what we'll focus on. In Philippians 1.27, Paul talks about this a little bit in unity and in focus. He says, only let your life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, in, or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, there's the unity, with one mind, which comes up later in, in verse 10, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the focus. So he brings them all together in Philippians as well. The focus is that we're striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. It's not about paint color. It's not about preference. And boy, I wish we'd start at 925 instead of 930. It's about the cross of Christ. It's about the work of Christ. How we can be part of that work in discipling each other in reaching a lost world for Christ. That's the voice we're to have. And when we all share that voice, the other stuff goes away. It just doesn't matter. So Paul says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Where he's going to go, I'll just leave that there, because where he's going to go in the next couple um, Sundays, what we study, is what that one voice should contain. So just sort of know that it's one voice, and we'll study that a little bit more in the weeks to come. But so his first instruction is that you all agree. His second instruction is verse 10, and it's more of what to avoid, a warning, a prohibition. There be no divisions among you. There be no divisions among you. The word for divisions there comes from the Greek word schisma, which is what we would get. Schism, thank you. And it meant a tearing or a rending apart. And this is more than a difference of opinion. Again, that's not what Paul is talking about. This is talking about conflicting aims or objectives and taking sides to a point where you are tearing people apart from one another. In fact, in the secular world at Corinth, they used the same word to refer to conflicting political parties. Not to bring up the election again. But that's the imagery that fits what Paul is speaking out against. It's not just highlighting differences of opinion, but where they've gone to. That now it's a struggle for power. And so the divisions here are a condition resulting from splitting, tearing. And it creates a crack in the church, a tear in the church that leaves room for Satan. He says, speak the same voice, be of one mind, beware of things that tear you apart. Don't even open the door for those. And then he comes back to a positive instruction. I love how he sandwiches a, a warning in between two positives. His, his last positive instruction there is, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. That you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And again, we think of united as we're all the same. 
This was a very specific word that they used for restoring something back to a usable state. So restoring something back to a usable state. In fact, this very same word in Matthew 4.19 is used when, when Jesus is walking up and he finds, James, he finds James and John fishing with their father. Do you remember what they were doing with the nets? They were mending the nets. Same word. So, so when Paul says, I want you to be united, he says, I want you to mend things in the church. I want you to restore the unity so that you're useful again. Because divisions destroy our usefulness and our ability to serve God, don't they? Because it takes our focus completely away from the main thing. Paul says, in mind and in judgment. Very similar concepts. The intellect, um, the mind, um, judgment, your thoughts, your purposes. I think Paul puts that in there, and this is just sort of a guess on my part or what I think, but I think he puts it in there to help us understand that unity goes beyond the surface. I can pretend to be united. I can pretend to have the same voice. But Paul, at the end of this verse, one verse packed with instruction says, and it needs to be in your thought life and your purposes and on the inside. Because if I'm harboring something against somebody in this room, I can come and I can act and I can look all nice, but that is still eating me away on the inside and tearing me apart and causing division. Eventually it will come out, just like a festering wound, it will come out. So Paul says, not just on the outside, but on the inside, we're to be united. Flip over to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, another situation where Paul was dealing with some, some disunity in the church, two women especially that were in conflict with each other, that he deals with specifically in chapter 4 of Philippians. But in chapter 2, he uses some of these same words that we read in, in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. And he goes on to give a prescription for that. How to do that. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's not about rivalry. It's not about dissension and which party is going to win. It's about putting each other above ourselves. Because ultimately, that's how we bring glory to God. A couple of things just as we talk about unity. Some of these I've already mentioned, but what, what does this concept of unity not mean? Because we can think of it as, as that we're to be clones of each other. It also doesn't mean that we're to have the same preferences or the same opinions. In fact, in fact Paul goes on and later in the same book in 1 Corinthians, and he's talking in 1 Corinthians 12 about gifts. And what does he say about gifts in the body? We all have different gifts. We all have different roles. And so we're all made differently with different purposes that work together for the main thing. Why do we struggle with differences of opinions? Think about that for a moment. Why do we take our opinions, and we'll talk about this in the next point a little bit, and elevate them to a point where now I need people on my side and I need people to, to rally around me? 
And I would argue, in, in my experience, and as I've seen different situations, it's usually because I want what I want. And that's the best way for me to get it, is if I can get support for that. And we'll look at James in just a moment where James says that. Paul is saying not to be, he's not saying you can't be clones, or you have to be clones, but don't divide and dig in over differences. Set aside your arguments and preferences and focus on what's important. Why is being united important? It's another question to ask as we think through this section in the, the next two chapters. Why is unity in the church important? Just, just a couple sentences. What do you think? Yeah. What was that? United we stand, divided we fall. Okay? That's how we can stand together. It reflects the Trinity and His nature. And Paul's going to go there. Our testimony to the world. Absolutely. If someone comes in or if someone hears about a church divided and bickering and quarreling about things, I don't want that God. That's not from God. Just a couple of thoughts that I had, and you've mentioned some of them. The first is, it, it, being united is important because of the issue of dishonor. Division keeps us from giving glory to God. We dishonor God. In Romans 15, 5 and 6, a verse that we studied in our community groups a few weeks back, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, so he's talking about unity, harmony, all the parts working together. And then in verse 6, he gives the reason that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity, when we have one voice, when we speak the same voice, it brings glory to God. He loves it. It pleases Him. To the world, it brings reputation glory to God. And so the inverse is true. If we are not united, we are not giving glory to God. Being united is important. Distraction is another word. Divisions are used by Satan to keep us from God's work. I think of the Philippians 1 passage I read about we're to, to stand side by side contending for the Gospel as one. Divisions keep us from standing side by side and contending for the Gospel as one. It's a distraction. If we're fighting each other and arguing whether this side of the sanctuary is better than this side of the sanctuary, which I still say this is the right side. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> it's on my right, but I guess if I did this. Um, but if we're arguing about things like that, are we focused on the work of God? No, we're distracted. Another reason why being united is important and why Paul is dealing with it first is division is a hindrance. Division is a hindrance. It hinders the individual's growth because it's sin, as we'll see with the next verse. It also hinders the growth of the church. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about how does the church grow as each part comes together and does its work, as there's harmony. And finally, the, the last word I have is harm. It's what Lorraine said. Division harms the testimony of the church. It brings shame to God. Because it is not reflective of who He is. In John 
Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. Unity is vital. And so the first thing Paul says, we need to make sure that we have the same thing, the main thing. See, no one argues about paint color in a foxhole. If you have people shooting at you, I don't think there's ever been one soldier saying, you know, if we rearrange this rock over here, it might just, the feng shui would be a little better here. No, what are you focused on? Incoming. How do I save my life? And that's why if we have the same voice on the main thing, the important thing, the other things melt away. Paul goes on in 11 and 12. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, and and Chloe was a, a believer, could have been a believer in Ephesus, that then her servants went to Corinth and found out what was going on and brought that back the information to Paul. Could have been that she was a, one of the house church leader or homes host homes in Corinth, and her people came to Ephesus and reported to Paul. But she's a believer. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And Paul here gets to the problem. says, this is what I'm hearing. I think he specifically mentions Chloe, because then they can't say, oh, you know, that's just hearsay. That's No, no, she's there. This is reliable. And point number two is we need to beware of loyalties to men and spiritualizing preferences. Beware of loyalties to men and spiritualizing preferences. And what I mean by spiritualizing preferences is when we take opinions and turn them into spiritual absolutes. Well, I like blue for our chairs, and actually the Bible supports me in that. It's sort of an absurd situation, but that's, we do that with our preferences in a church. It's easy to do that. We spiritualize them and try to turn them into right or wrong instead of just what they are, preferences. And we see those two things happening there, loyalties to men and spiritualizing their preferences in these verses. Paul says, there's quarreling among you. And and again, language has different meaning. Quarreling for some of you is just, you know, casual bickering. It's no big deal. Quarreling for others of you, this is a huge deal. And and it's a a full-on, knockdown, drag-out fight. Well, if we look at the usage that Paul would use and, and of this original language, it is more intense than even the divisions mentioned in the last verse. It's, it's a, a word for a hot dispute. It's not a weak word. But he's saying, you guys are fighting. You guys are fighting over, over who you like better. Over preferences. If we want to know a little bit of of Paul's view of quarreling and why earlier I said this is a sin issue, in Galatians 5, 19 and 20, Paul's about to go into the fruit of the Spirit, which we love that passage, but right before that, he talks about the fruit of the world, which we don't really care for that passage as much. But in the fruit of the world, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. These are sin, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, and then the next word is strife. And that's the same word as quarreling in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. He goes on, just in case they didn't get it, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. 
Paul lists these as works of the flesh. This is a huge issue. And we see in verse 12 what's happening, and, and Paul's just very clear. Okay, if you don't know what I mean by quarreling, here's what I mean. You're saying you follow these different individuals. You're dividing into factions. And, and this is this, the, the idea of I follow Paul, or I follow Paul, it says I belong to Paul. I'm of the tribe of Paul. I'm of the tribe of Apollos. And, and by implication, it's, and I don't follow so-and-so. It was a positive and a negative statement. And we have to understand a little bit, and we talked about in the intro to Corinth, that really Cor- Corinthians is about a church that's in a very ungodly city, and the city is seeping into the church instead of the church infiltrating the city. And this is a case where that helps us understand this. See, in the city, they had this system of patronage and client. And what that meant is you had wealthy people, and we know from the two ports that many people had opportunities to gain wealth. And the wealthy people would gain status by helping less fortunate people called clients. And so they would come along and maybe give some work to someone that was less fortunate, give some money, and they would commit to supporting them. You are my client. I will give you a place to live. I'll give you a job. And then it was expected of that client that then they would give loyalty to that person. So that's what's happening all over the city. That's the culture. Not necessarily a a sinful culture at that point. That's just what was happening. And so the church, as the church came together, that's their background of how you respond to someone giving you and investing in your life. So you can see how it would be very natural for, okay, Paul invested and and Paul shared with me the gospel and I was saved under Paul's ministry. And so they're like, he's my patron. I follow Paul. I'm loyal to Paul. And we know Apollos from, from Acts 18, which I think you just did in the Acts class, those of you that are in that class, Apollos was a man that came along after and a Jew from Alexandria and a very learned man and an, an able speaker, an eloquent speaker, which would have been very appealing in Corinth where, where eloquence was prized. And we know that in Ephesus, he, he um, met with Priscilla and Aquila there. They corrected some of his doctrine, so we know his doctrine was right. The church sent him with Paul's blessing to Corinth. And he was the next pastor after Paul there. And some people really latched on to his style of teaching. And they're like, oh, he has done so much for me. I've grown so much under Apollos. He's my patron. I belong to Apollos. Can you see that happening? Even if it was well-meaning, it was not what Paul would want for the church or what God would want for his church. Because no man is my patron. Men are simply messengers. Who is our allegiance to be to? God Almighty. To Jesus Christ. Anything that replaces an allegiance to God. Anything is idolatry. And so Paul addresses it. We know that the city could get very zealous about who they followed and the patrons they followed. Um, In fact, it was common for students of one teacher to, to always be insulting students of another teacher. What was the church doing? 
dividing into factions and warring over things. And we know that later in the book. They're insulting each other. In fact, in one case, disciples of one teacher were so angry about the treatment from disciples of another teacher that they went and killed the other teacher. Okay, so when we speak of factions, that's the, the level of intensity that we're talking. There's rivalries. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul calls them jealousy and strife of the flesh. And so Paul's very serious when he says, this is a problem. I follow Paul, the founder of the church there, man of great logical arguments, not necessarily the greatest speaking ability. We know Apollos, like I said, was a man of God, brilliant orator. Some said, I follow Cephas, which is Peter. The, the one that was back in Jerusalem. The apostle, the disciple of Christ. He would have carried more weight to some as one of the founders of the church. And then others, and this is one of the ones that sometimes is confusing, others were saying, I follow Christ. Now that's a good thing, right? We should follow Christ. But in the context here, as Paul is going through this list, he's including it in the other three. So he is not viewing this as a positive thing. Because what was happening is people were, were, well, you guys can have your own factions, but I am so much more spiritually mature than you are. It's not about man for me. It's about Christ for me. And the words are good. The idea is good. But the heart was not good because they were still using it to divide and to put others down. To exclude others. It was still partisan politics. We're the ones that really belong to Christ. Not so sure about the others. And so Paul is warning them against loyalties to men and against spiritualizing preferences because that was the issue between the men. They were teaching good theology. The men would have had nothing. They, they every one of them would have abhorred this happening. But people were latching on to different preferences and saying this is right and the others are wrong. Turn to James 1, 4. James 4 for just a moment. And this comes back to why do we do this? Because we can still do this today. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? I love it when a verse just spells out what it's answering. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And James there is, is saying, what causes the quarrels? It's when you are about yourself. When it's just about your own interests, your own passions, your own desires. That's why we quarrel. And if you think about arguments we get into and quarrels we get into, that is almost always the center of it. Now keep in mind point number one, the main, we're to have the same main thing. 
There are some things worth dividing over. There are some things worth quarreling over. The main thing. If someone walks in and says, you know, I don't think Jesus is God. We're going to quarrel over that. I don't think He really died on the cross. And I don't think He's the only way for salvation. No, we'll divide over that. Because that's the main thing. But Paul here is referring to preferences over speaking styles and ministry styles. And he's, he's saying that's, that comes from self. From self-centeredness. James is saying that. See, we want our own preferences. And when it comes to following a man, we want to feel important. And again, in Corinth, your status was identified by who you associated with who your patron was, who your clients were. And so this was jockeying for positions of power and of importance in the church of which God wants no part of. Now what this doesn't mean... Sorry, I got out of of order on my notes for a moment. What this doesn't mean, again, like the point number one, is it, it, it isn't saying that we can't appreciate different things about different people's ministry. It doesn't say that that different people aren't going to minister to us in different ways. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. I love that we share teaching here at Village and we rotate through and, and you hear from Pastor Andrew sometimes and from others sometimes because all of us have different styles and all of us have different ways of expressing things and the church is better for it. It's better for it if it's not just one personality that is dictating everything. You know, sometimes I get asked, well, is it okay for me to listen to podcasts? You know, there's some really good speakers out there like Alistair Begg and, and some of the others that are out there and, and Mark Dever. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. They are great. I listen to some of them. But the question is, Is it becoming an allegiance? Is it going to be a dividing factor? Or is it bringing us back to the same main thing? If teaching like that is bringing you into a deeper understanding of Christ, praise God! I would be a fool to oppose that. my My one warning with something like podcasts is that's not church. That's not the body of Christ. And those men aren't your shepherd. You're shepherded by by the local assembly you choose to come to and be part of, by the elders and pastors there. But man, if there's someone that you enjoy listening to that's just getting you in God's Word, listen more. This isn't a popularity contest. It's about the main thing. How can we best follow Christ? And we have to be careful of that. Maybe factions today are, well, I study C.S. Lewis. I listen to Chuck Swindoll. I like Bonhoeffer. Well, I like the classics. Calvin and Spurgeon. And... Be careful not to divide over those. To get into different camps based on fallible men. Third point, verses 13 through 16. Intentionally elevate and worship Jesus, not the messenger. And this is the second half of point number two. Intentionally elevate and worship Jesus, not the messenger. He's the one that saved us. Not me. Not Pastor Andrew. Not any of the elders here. We're just messengers. 
He is the only one worthy of being elevated, of being put on a pedestal. And so Paul starts with three questions in verse 13. And these are rhetorical questions with the implication, no, that's absurd. So, so just know that he's, he's digging in a little bit into their, their thought system and their view of life. And he's indignant as he does. And the first thing he says, is Christ divided? Really? Is Christ divided? And the word for divided there means to chop up and parcel out pieces of. Which is sort of a crude, I mean, he's using a crude word to talk about Jesus because that's what you do when you divide. When you start saying, my group is more spiritual than your group. It's chopping up Jesus and dividing him among the groups. You have a little less Jesus than I do. Oh, but, you know, you're still believers probably. And that's sickening. It's hard to even talk about. Christ is not a commodity to be haggled over. Cliques and factions try to divide a triune God who is one. Because we know if you have Jesus, you have all of Jesus. There is no separating Him. And Paul here with this this rhetorical question is saying, do you realize that when you divide into divisions and factions, when when you are, are not united, that you are... You are mocking the unity that Christ shed His blood to provide to the church. That's serious. So he starts with, is Christ divided? And he goes to, was Paul crucified for you? And he's now talking about the work of salvation. He says, really, did any of us save you? See, if Paul or Apollos or Cephas, if any of them had died for someone at Corinth, what difference would it have made? Nothing. Because if man dies, we die for our own sins. We don't pay for anyone else unless we live, have lived a perfect life and unless we're God. And only one man fell into that category. Jesus Christ. And so Paul is using sarcasm here to get them back to the work of the cross. To remind them As men, we're just tiny servants compared to the work of the Almighty God. They didn't understand who had really helped them. And then finally he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And when we baptize people here at Village, we say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Because baptism is a symbol of identifying with the work of Christ. His death as you go under, His resurrection as you come up. And it's a public declaration that says, I identify with Christ, so I am following Him with my life. And the church here was manipulating it to say, well, Paul baptized me, so I'm following Paul. No, 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 baptism isn't about that. That perverts it. Baptism is this beautiful expression of saying, I love Jesus and I'm going to follow Him because He died for me. So when we're talking about baptism, we're talking about ongoing who are, who are my loyalties to? Who am I identifying with? See, the work of Christ changes you. I can never change anyone in this room. Pastor Andrew can never change anyone in this room. The Holy Spirit changes lives. The Holy Spirit transforms our mind into Christ's likeness. We are simple messengers. And that's what Paul is saying. It's not about me. It's about Christ. 
don't elevate me. My hope for village is that the focus is always on Christ. On His work in our lives. I hope that we do ministry in such a way that, that God forbid if something was to happen to any of the pastors or elders, ministry would just continue. And lives would still be tracking with Jesus Christ and doing His work. Because that's the main thing. That's what Corinth had forgotten. Paul goes on to talk about divided ministry, actually, when he talks about baptism in verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus. And Crispus was the synagogue ruler in Corinth that came to Christ. And Gaius, and we know from Romans, the end of Romans, that Gaius probably had a house church and he was hosting Paul as he, as, um, as he wrote the book of Romans. And then in the next verse, the household of Stephanus, some of the first converts at Corinth, those were the only ones Paul baptized. He said, I, I'm glad. So now, now keep in mind, he's not minimizing baptism. People were still being baptized. Who was baptizing them? So this is cool. Other leaders in the church. Other men, men were baptizing and were taking up the mantle of ministry. As you study Paul in his life, Paul always did ministry with others. It was joint ministry. And so if we want to be on guard against elevating men and putting men on pedestals in a man-centered ministry, the best way is to share ministry. Have a whole bunch of people do ministry then, if they're qualified. Love God and are going to do, do God's work. We need to make sure we're always sharing ministry and always pointing people back to Christ. Martin Luther, when he heard that some of his followers were called Lutherans, was infuriated. And this is what he said. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? I share that sentiment. Maybe not the maggots, but he understood it was about Christ, not him. Verse 17, and this is another hinge verse. So it concludes this section, but it also introduces next week's section. In verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And point number four there, it's about sharing the power of the cross, not building ourselves up. It's about sharing the power of the cross with others, with a world that needs it, with others that we're discipling, not building ourselves up. And we see Paul mention that. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. That's His main thing. And if baptism, and, and that He personally is baptizing, if that's getting in the way and, and causing people to, to become part of the faction of Paul, then He'll give that up. But He won't give up the Gospel. Because He says, that's what I was called to do. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, which is what Corinth valued, you know, having a great prepared speech and, and all these wonderful points and, and how they all work together. He says, no, that, that's not what it's about. And he's not saying we shouldn't speak well, but he's saying if, if it's my style of speaking that convinces somebody, we've lost. Because the last thing he says is, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's coming back to what changes you. 
if I convince you of something this morning because of some eloquent sermon, that means nothing and it won't last. But if I lead you to the cross of Christ and say that should be our main thing because the work that He has done in our lives, that's change that lasts. And Paul would rather have simple speech that simply declares the Gospel and have people really changed and really become children of God than for the focus to be on His abilities. We'll talk about where that verse leads a lot more in the next two weeks. But I want to end with this. We need to be on guard for divisions in the church. We need to be diligent to let nothing separate us, to, to make sure we are not looking down on anyone for any difference of opinion. And that, in this case, was following men and which style you preferred. But that can be so many different things in the church, can't it? So many different preferences. And I would ask you as we close today, if there is anything, and we'll bow our heads in a moment, if there is anything that you sense division with someone else in the church, it can be personality conflicts, it could be angry words, it could be hurt, but if there is anything that is dividing people, and especially if people are starting to take sides, there is no place for that in the church of Christ. And we must deal with it directly and immediately so we can move forward and mend the nets. And so I would ask us to bow our heads right now and just spend a moment with God. and Say, God, if there is anything that I'm doing out of arrogance or pride to elevate myself over others, to divide your work here, that you'd show that to me. Lord God Almighty, I pray that we would be your servants. In every sense of the word, that it's not about us, it's not about elevating us, it's not about my preferences, but it's about what the Master says is the main thing. Lord, I thank you for just so many different ways that this church has been committed to outreach, committed to discipleship, committed to making the main thing the same thing of what we speak. Lord, I pray that we would be on guard and stand for that, that we continue to strive for your work and let nothing stop us. Thank you for your word. Instruction on living godly. In your name, amen.